0: Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This summer, take your career to the next level and earn an International Diploma in Humanitarian Assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in New York City. Students will learn how to facilitate dialogue and cooperation between governments and civil society, how to be more effective during humanitarian crises, and more. The program runs from May 31st through June 27th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm
1: Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted.
0: Today, March was supposed to be China's time to shine as president of the Security Council. But then the coronavirus outbreak hit and is still spreading across the globe. On this episode, we look at how the COVID-19 outbreak has affected Chinese diplomacy at the UN in New York. This is
1: Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the
0: reporters covering them. Our monthly episode on the presidency of the Security Council is taking a far different turn in March, with China in the hot seat. And as much as the country has been trying to keep a low profile and deal with COVID-19 at home, China is at the center stage of world diplomacy.
1: Yes, and while China is trying to be discreet and the ambassador declined to be interviewed for this episode, we're looking at the Security Council through a global health angle. Both China and the UN are trying to address the risk of COVID-19 spreading at upcoming high-profile meetings in New York, where a few cases have been reported. This month, the UN was supposed to host the biggest annual women's rights meeting in the world, but because of this
0: public health emergency, the UN had to change its plan. To cover this very important story, we'll have some information coming from China's press briefing on its presidency, Also, we'll chat with Dr. Courtney Fung, an expert on China's role at the UN, who's based in Hong Kong. She specializes in China's strategy in UN peacekeeping operations and has extensive insights on what to expect from China at the UN. So stay tuned. She'll tell us not only what the virus means for China's diplomacy, but also what it's like to live in Hong Kong right now, where many people have been stuck in tight living quarters for weeks as schools are closed. But first, let's look at this month. So, being president of the
1: Security Council is routine for China, as this role comes back regularly for the permanent members of the Security Council. When we asked around, most diplomats say they are expecting a highly professional presidency, as it is the norm for China. That's despite the probable chaos inside the Chinese Politburo over the COVID-19 outbreak. I mean, that's a lot to handle for a country of 1.4
0: billion. Right. The Communist Party has been under fire and facing high scrutiny both at home, which is a rare thing, and abroad for its handling of the virus so far. At the same time, the World Health Organization has praised China for its openness, as expectations were probably pretty low after China's handling of the SARS outbreak in 2003. But China has
1: also shown some surprising openness here at the UN in the last month. Ambassador Zhang held a long and formal briefing with reporters in February after the situation got suddenly desperate in China, basically telling the press corps that China is taking the situation seriously. So it's going to be important to watch how open China will be in taking questions by the media throughout the month as the virus situation is changing every day.
0: It's very unlikely that the Security Council will hold any meeting related to the virus because the diplomats say it's not the appropriate forum to do so. And this kind of makes sense because COVID-19 isn't considered a threat to international peace and security, which is the Council's mandate. At least, that's what Ambassador Zhang stated at a media briefing on March 2nd. But it's worth noting that there was a Security Council meeting on the Ebola outbreak in 2015 during a session on peace and security in Africa. But UN diplomats are saying it's unlikely there will be any meeting on this outbreak. In a way, such a virus can be a threat to international peace and security. But in
1: general, the World Health Organization handles such files. And when we talked to a Chinese diplomat here in New York in late February, He said they did not expect questions about the coronavirus to come up during their meetings with reporters. The Chinese ambassador was pretty clear about this at his press briefing on March 2nd, and even though he didn't want to talk about the virus, he spent most of the 45-minute session talking
0: about it. So I guess that means no meeting on COVID-19 so far. But what else is on this month's agenda? China is focusing on
1: issues that the country generally prioritizes at the UN. The biggest topic is multilateralism. At an open debate on March 19, the Council will welcome some very special guests to speak. The UN Secretary General, the President of the General Assembly, and the President of the International
0: Court of Justice. And another priority for China will be combating terrorism in Africa. That'll be discussed at a March 11th session, and the safety of peacekeepers on March 24th. Overall, what the Chinese call political settlement of various conflicts around the globe will be part of the big picture in the Council. At this press briefing, the ambassador
1: also mentioned Middle East tensions, talking about Syria, Libya, Iraq, and Yemen. He said, and I quote, We can't kill all the problems, but we all can do more to find solutions. But still, China has vetoed nearly as many resolutions on the Syrian war as Russia,
0: creating strong divisions in the council. And while China may be trying to focus its presidency on multilateralism and peacekeeping, COVID-19 isn't going away. And China's presidency isn't the only UN business being affected. The Annual Commission on the Status of Women, known as CSW, was supposed to start on March 9th and last 11 days. 12,000 people were expected to come to New York City for the annual Women's Rights event. But the UN had to drastically scale down the event to one day.
1: This is an especially important year for CSW because it marks the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration on Women's Empowerment. And needless to say, delegates and other participants were supposed to come from all over the world.
0: The U.N. Secretary General announced he was recommending that the CSW be scaled back and only include New York representatives. They will
1: still meet for one day on March 9th so U.N. diplomats can end up a political declaration for CSW. But many women's rights advocates, especially civil society groups that won't be able to attend, are disappointed that the final declaration won't mention sexual, reproductive, and health rights. Still, it's an incredibly important declaration.
0: So we know how COVID-19 is already impacting the UN, but we have no idea how long travel restrictions are going to last or get stricter. The UN says it's ready to handle the virus generally at its headquarters. The risk level here in New York is rated low, so the city's preventative measures include recommending people wash their hands thoroughly, wear a mask if they show symptoms of the virus, and stay home if they're feeling unwell.
1: But China's presidency will press on, and Courtney Fong is joining us to give her insights on China's strategy at the UN as a permanent member of the Security Council. Dr. Fong is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Hong Kong. She studied China's work at the UN and most specifically peacekeeping. Keep in mind that we talked in late February, so part of what she's talking about when it comes to the coronavirus may have slightly changed. Great. Let's hear the interview. So can you first tell me what it's like to live in Hong Kong right now? I know the city is not in lockdown, but I'm pretty sure that you can feel the fear of the virus around.
2: Sure. Um, So Hong Kong at the moment, frankly, is pretty quiet compared to its normal hustle and bustle. If you're living in Hong Kong and normally very small apartments with many family all living with you, the big news obviously for the day-to-day is that all schools for children have been closed for about 12 weeks in total. So that's a pretty long time to be enjoying a small apartment with all of your family. But otherwise, I think for the large part, day by day, it does appear that, you know, Hong Kong is getting back to a version of normal. There are more and more people coming out on the streets because at some point you can't spend months on end at home.
1: Turning to China's Security Council presidency here in New York this month, how do you think the coronavirus or COVID-19 is going to affect the way China executes its presidency and its diplomatic work in general? I mean, the foreign ministry in China is probably very busy.
2: Yes. I mean, I would imagine that the foreign ministry has a lot on its plate in terms of, obviously, the public diplomacy and the information communication regarding the coronavirus. That said, obviously, it is the foreign ministry that provides the majority of the staff to China's permanent mission at the UN. And of course, the majority of the staff that will be working through its month-long rotation as UN Security Council president for the month of March 2020. China is extremely organized when it comes to being prepared for its presidency. It takes this work extremely seriously. So, frankly, my wager is I doubt that this coronavirus, COVID 19, is going to slow Beijing down or take their eye off the ball in terms of their preparations for business in New York. What I do see for this coming month, and from what we do understand by press releases through the permanent mission of China's website, is that, of course, China's ambassador, Zhang Jun, has been very busy visiting his ambassadorial counterparts from countries, you know, very big and countries also smaller. So working his way through discussions with partners in Iraq, partners from South Sudan, etc. And of course, also meeting with UN body heads to prepare them to be ready to work with China as China leads the council next month. And of course, China's march agenda is no surprise. But I think, In this positive agenda, Beijing does have a bit of an uphill battle, because they're going to have to overcome a lot of criticism that they've had most recently. China has been under fire for its willingness to veto UN Security Council intervention into the ongoing Syrian conflict. Eight out of China's 13 UN Security Council vetoes have been cast on this conflict alone. There was a veto at the end of the year regarding Venezuela. And now we understand that the other remaining members of the UN Security Council, nine members have come out and asked the UN Secretary General to make some type of response regarding the Idlib crisis ongoing in um, northwestern Syria. And again, that's been in part because China has been a quite effective Security Council player in sort of keeping that item on the agenda for discussion, but not on the agenda for actual action.
1: So you're saying that China is likely to be criticized because of what it has done with its veto. Uh, But how do you see uh, this happening during its presidency? Do you think other member states will just bring it up in the council?
2: Well, I mean, I think we're going to see more consistent language coming out of the United States, coming out of Great Britain, um, France other rotating members at the council at the moment also airing their concerns about the lack of response in Syria. I mean, there's been a real sort of groundswell within the UN system saying that something has to be done. I mean, this 950,000 people have been displaced since December in northwest Syria, and that there needs to be some particular action to be done. We've seen a turn that they're not afraid now to start naming Russia and China as being obstructionist. and I think we're likely to see that continue amongst other permanent members of the council that are quite disappointed at the lack of action. And I think we are going to see consistent language from the UN Secretary General that something has to be done. Whether or not we're going to see the Secretary General naming names, I think is a separate issue.
1: Uh, coming back to China's presidency, as we said earlier in the podcast, uh, China's mission to the UN did not seem to expect questions from reporters about the coronavirus. So how do you think the coronavirus is going to
2: play out with China's presidency? Well, I mean, I stand by my view that China will have a robust schedule dealing with the traditional peace and security issues that are coming through the council. And I can imagine the surprise that you discuss in part because COVID-19, the coronavirus has not been discussed as a threat to international peace and security. And to a large extent, China's very consistent position is that the UN Security Council is a place to discuss issues of international peace and security. So, you know, individual states' performances regarding human rights, for example, those are issues germane to the UN Human Rights Council do not bring questions of North Korean human rights, for example. China's very consistent position has been, do not bring these questions back to the UN Security Council. They have their own specialist venue.
0: We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Partnership for Transparency, a group of volunteer international development specialists. They work to advance good governance in developing countries by supporting civil society organizations. PTF believes governments alone can't be expected to stop corruption. Their latest research shows that well-designed, citizen-led programs to strengthen transparency and accountability can produce better outcomes than state-led initiatives. PTF's report has practical recommendations for how empowered, engaged, and professional non-government actors can advance Sustainable Development Goal 16. To read the report or learn more about PTF's work, visit ptfund.org. Now, back to the show.
1: One thing you mentioned is that peacekeeping is very important to China, And it has given China also a lot of influence at the UN. Uh, That's a topic that you study and that you specialize in. Can you tell me a little more about why China has strategically decided to invest in peacekeeping, both financially and also as a true contributor?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I guess the, the one line answer to that question, why the strategic investment in UN peacekeeping, UN peacekeeping, for all of its issues, for all of the criticisms launched against it, it is largely seen as a means to provide for global security. It's a global public good. And China's participation and ongoing commitment to UN peacekeeping allows China to sell the image of China being a great state that is very different from all of the great powers in the fact that China is a real contributor to the UN peacekeeping system and actually quite a consistent contributor. So, for example, if we think about four ways that you can contribute to UN peacekeeping, there's policy design and discussion, there's mandate design and resolution politicking, and China's become increasingly active. They've been on the record repeatedly talking about their concerns regarding these Christmas tree resolutions, so resolutions that we just keep adding another ornament another desire, another ambition for these peacekeeping missions, leaving them with mandates that are virtually impossible, if not internally contradictory, to try and achieve. And of course there's financing, where China is now the second largest contributor to the UN regular budget, and it likes to pay its dues on time. And also there's the last lever, and China's had a very proud reputation as a troop contributor, especially stepping up at a time when many other states were shunning participation in UN peacekeeping. So by sort of working hard and by showing its commitment to the regime, China is able to say that it is a responsible great power, and it's responsible in ways that the United States, Great Britain, France are not. China's current contributions are more than the rest of the P5 combined. But again, we have to bear in mind that China's troop contributions for peacekeeping only occur through the UN platform. China does not have an alternate means, for example, like NATO, like an EU rapid reaction force. China also does not do coalitions of the willing, and China does not go it alone. So all of China's efforts are targeted through the UN. And so I think just to unpack this question a little bit further, you know, we have to think about all the reasons why China would be interested in participating in peacekeeping. And in part, Since China assumed its seat at the UN Security Council in 1971, China's come a long way. Because if we think back to that first decade, China essentially followed a three-nose policy. So China would not vote, it would not deploy, and it would not finance peacekeeping. By the 1980s, you see that China understands that there's value in having a UN peacekeeping regime in terms of promoting international peace and stability. And that would permit China's economic growth and development at home. And 1990s is the first real move towards consistent deployment of troops overseas. And so it takes them until about 2013 for China to become focused upon deploying a different type of troop. China sends its first deployment of combat troops. So the actual troops that have to enforce a mandate and to ensure that protection of civilians actually does take place. But there's a whole variety of reasons why China would do this. And these can be sort of broken down into three or four different groups. So, of course, like any other state, China is not doing this entirely altruistically. So, of course, by you know promoting international peace and stability, China can also protect its overseas nationals and its overseas investments. Also, this permits China to work more broadly in terms of addressing anti-extremism and anti-terrorism which is now something that UN peacekeeping missions, for better or for worse, are starting to overlap into. And of course, there's another type of very practical benefit that peacekeeping provides China a real platform for military diplomacy and real military learning opportunities. And then in the last part, there's the more intangible gains provided by peacekeeping in that peacekeeping provides very particular status and reputation gains for China. So if you deploy to peacekeeping, you can be seen as a peer of the global south, bolstering their needs for individual peace and security. And you can also be seen as moving and understanding what a great power is. And China's great power drive has been to show itself as a responsible power, i.e. China is doing things that these Western states don't want to do, and they are willing to deploy their troops on the ground through the UN. So this serves a number of very useful devices in terms of foreign policy and, of course, for domestic policy, being able to show that China is a strong country, helping other nations, again, only boosts internal support and internal interest in terms of what the Chinese state can do on behalf of the Chinese people.
1: So China right now is literally investing everywhere and its foreign policy covers the whole world. But we've seen China having an increasingly bigger influence in Africa. So how do you think that these peacekeeping investments play into China's interests and ambitions in
2: Africa? I think it's a very complicated space for China to have to navigate. China has made it very clear that it wants to be a partner in promoting African peace and development and economic prosperity, but it wants to be a partner in promoting these great benefits for the African continent and for many African nations in ways that China itself sees fit, as a responsible big power and as a developing state. Sometimes China's views may differ from the sort of reigning Western-led discourse about having state-building, nation-building, more liberal values like accountability, equality, universality, transparency, accountability, things like this. And so China's offering a very particular approach in its engagement with the African continent and with the individual African states, in that it doesn't necessarily emphasize the need to achieve some type of grand institution-building activity, and it's not necessarily pushing the idea that you have to have And interpretation of these values in order to be seen as being a successful state. And of course, peacekeeping fits in as one particular lever for Beijing to engage a number of African players. So China has offered 100 million in terms of supporting the African Union standby force, again, in line with China's thematic interests about supporting regional organizations as a means to support international peace and security. So peacekeeping, again, provides a very particular lever. And there are, of course, seven missions out of the 13 peacekeeping missions that that are based in Africa at the moment. And we can see, based on China's past record, that there has been this sort of commitment to peacekeeping, thought about and phrased as a means to protect and promote African peace and security on the continent and in particular for certain states.
1: Coming back to China's relationship with the UN, In one of your papers, you outlined how China and the UN have a mutually beneficial relationship. I mean, it's kind of the same thing for the other permanent five members of the Security Council. But do you think that the UN, particularly the Secretary General and maybe even other member states, has grown reluctant to criticize China because of this relationship and also reluctant to criticize China
2: of how it's handling the coronavirus? Mm. I mean, I think that's a very interesting question, because I've read a lot of the analysis and the press coming out about this particular Secretary General's very um, quiet diplomacy, his quiet diplomacy regarding questions of human rights. But I would imagine if we are to see a continuing trend, that I do think other permanent members of the Council are unafraid um, to share their views publicly about China to air their disappointment when they feel that China has not been the team player that they hope in terms of advancing international peace and security in ways that they would desire. So when China' is viewed as holding back resolutions or being a finicky negotiator, there's been a very steady stream of reports and criticisms regarding that. But I think regarding the coronavirus in particular, it's been quite fascinating. a lot of the criticisms aimed towards the WHO. And I think I've read a lot of off-the-cuff remarks that based upon China's size and budget contributions and presence through the UN system, the WHO is unwilling to criticize China for its shortcomings regarding the initial outbreak of the coronavirus, COVID-19. But I would like to unpack the question further, though, and I would imagine if you are working within the UN system, for example, at the WHO, then I would assume that your goal is to try and limit the initial epidemic within China, and the potential pandemic that we now understand is at about 83,000 cases worldwide, with over 52 states now confirmed with having their own coronavirus COVID-19 cases. And the way that you would do this, if you were the UN, as I would assume you would go through the WHO as your focal point, in order to provide a boost in technical capacity with all the different medical teams and epidemiologists that can study the epidemiology of the disease, the WHO is a focal point to coordinate any international response and share information. And of course, that the WHO is a conduit to try and gain credible data on numbers of infected patients, on measures being taken, and of course, access to try and understand what's going on in country. So it's a very delicate mix of science, medicine, and of course, diplomacy and policymaking. Um, and as we know, China has had a history of shutting down communication regarding the opening phases of of epidemics. And of course, China's history of shutting down communication uh, regarding these diseases in the opening phase of these epidemics has made it more complicated for the WHO to act. But again, I go back to my initial assumption. If the goal is to try and actually have an effective policy response, then the question really is, what is the right way to get China to share information? And I don't know if necessarily naming and shaming is the only particular tool in the toolkit that any UN official or WHO official can use. And my research from another area of China's foreign policy, in particular its actions at the UN Security Council, does indicate that there is a space for multilateral, bilateral diplomacy, even closed door diplomacy, um, that these particular tools do have a particular role to play in terms of engaging a state like China that has a concern about domestic stability and legitimacy, is very plugged into the global economy, so is, of course, very hesitant that if it says it has any particular major economic ramifications, that this could somehow have shock waves for its own much-needed economic growth, let alone for its ability to be tied into global economic success. And of course, China is very sensitive to its international image. And so to be seen as being caught flat-footed regarding dealing with this disease is something that Beijing doesn't want. So I would hope if we think about the different types of tools that could be used, that the way that the WHO can try and obtain its goal of limiting any epidemic or any potential pandemic, that this can be done in ways that do not compromise the reputation or the work of the WHO at the same time.
0: That's it for our show. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Filion with help from Brianna Lyman for PassBlue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulce Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear.
1: A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And PassBlue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
0: And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. Past Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Past Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever
1: you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.